So one of the things that I often say when I'm working with someone is that there's the fact of you and then there's the truth of you. And the fact of you may be whatever circumstances, you know, a person is dealing with that brings them into therapy, whatever stressors, you know, things in their job, things in their relationship, which are all temporal. And so there's the facts of our experience. And then there's the truth of our experience. The facts change all the time, but the truth, the unshakable truth is that every single one of us is born with infinite value and worth and nothing can change that nothing. Welcome to Digging Deep, true stories of big change. Each episode of this podcast digs deep into one person's story of change to reveal a little bit about how and why we make big changes in our lives and what can be learned from these experiences. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm, a consultancy that helps companies learn from their customers and consumers through deep conversation and connection, often told as stories like the one you'll hear on this podcast. So let's get the conversation started. Today's guest prefers to remain anonymous, even though she's established a very successful holistic wellness center and helped hosts of people cross the bridge from hurting to healing. Why is she anonymous? Because she's crossed that bridge herself and the potential for stigma still casts a shadow over her story of courage and resilience. Listening to her story, I learned how mental illness can become an identity, and how working to reframe life's facts can help one's true self emerge. I hope you enjoy and learn from this conversation as much as I did. First, let's talk about your wellness center, and then the path that brought you to where you are today. I started as just an individual therapist. Um, I started seeing people out of my back porch, actually, um, and just started getting a lot of referrals and it continued to build. And then I moved out of my home and got a larger place where I started to bring in other therapists. But having gone through my own personal struggles with, with mental health, I felt like what I wanted to do was share more than just what you can get out of therapy, but really what it takes to create an overall lifestyle of wellness. So we integrated, we have about five therapists right now and we have a massage therapist and we have someone who does acupuncture and we have a yoga studio. Uh, so we have yoga classes. We also have mindfulness. So it's all about teaching people how to stay well. And so in your mind, what does well mean? Balanced. And knowing that there's always going to be circumstances that can knock us off track and, you know, get us temporarily out of balance, but helping people to find ways to ground themselves and, and know how to find that peaceful center within that can help you to, you know, to regain balance when you've lost a sense of yourself. And so some of that is therapy. Some of that is learning to recognize your negative self-talk and those limiting beliefs and challenging that. But some of that is finding other somatic ways to help us find balance. And, and I don't, I'm not familiar with what somatic means. Um, meaning of the body. Um, so movement, um, we have you know, movement, massage, acupuncture. Um, there are forms of therapy where instead of just talking about it, you're actually feeling into your body where you store trauma. And then we find ways to help to release it. So really the full, you know, visceral experience, not just of the mind. Tell me what inspired you to pursue this field. 
I think I really lost almost all of my 20s um, just battling mental illness. And when I finally started feeling better and finally started feeling like, oh my gosh, this is what life is supposed to feel like. This is what my brain is supposed to feel like. I just wanted to be able to give back what I had learned and hopefully save someone the time that I lost. And so let's talk about what you went through in your 20s. What were some of the first signs that you weren't well? So, you know, my situation is very complicated. It's very multifaceted. Um, And I think that's really true for anyone. It's never just one thing that sets off an episode. But I suppose looking back, I was always a relatively hyper kid. Um, And I suppose that could maybe look like mania, hypomania. I found out after the fact that I have a history of bipolar illness in my family, also a history of schizophrenia. What first happened is I went through a major depressive episode and that started, I had a thyroid condition and when they, they were kind of experimenting with the medication and took me off. And when they took me off the medication, I just plummeted. And you know, with bipolar, it's these swings of, you know, mania and depression. And so it kind of kicked off the cycle for me. And then I guess another complicating factor is in trying to kind of pull out of the depression, I went to see a nutritionist. And this is back in the 80s when nothing, nothing was regulated. So I was put on this some kind of funky tea that had ginkgo biloba and ginseng and all these things that were supposed to increase your energy. Well, it increased my energy. (laughs) It really increased my energy. So all of a sudden I was up, you know, um, three days straight, couldn't sleep. I was writing chemistry equations. I was breaking things down into Latin root words, which I really had never studied. I felt like, you know, they say we only use like 10% of the brain. I felt like I suddenly had tapped into the other 90% of my brain and I just couldn't I couldn't assimilate it all. So that kind of looks like psychosis. (laughs) So 19 years old, and I went from being, you know, top of my class, very well liked in college to all of a sudden on the psych ward. Um, And because of my age, I, I was too old to be on the adolescent unit, but they weren't comfortable having me on the adult unit because some of the people that were there had like really chronic and persistent mental illness. Um, They thought it would be kind of scarring for me. So they put me on an isolation unit. And uh, yeah, I was there for about two months. Now, did you put yourself there or was that something that your parents or your medical practitioners decided for you? I I mean, I wasn't fully comprehending what was going on. I was like high as a kite. And it will always be hard for me to know how much of that was true bipolar and how much of that was, you know, the substances that they put me on. Um, Years later, a nurse practitioner that I've worked with, I do take medication now. And she said that if she was going to diagnose, she would say that that was substance-induced psychosis. So who knows? (laughs) So it could have been a triggering effect of something that may have been there in a latent form. Okay. It was there dormant. But point being, at the time that I was sent to the hospital, I really was not, you know, I was not in my right mind. 
So, you know, my parents were seeing the signs, all the writing, I, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was saying things that didn't make sense. So they took me to the crisis unit. And then from crisis, I was sent to a long-term facility. So for those of us who don't have any understanding of what's involved in an isolation unit, can you describe, to the extent you're comfortable, some of the experiences that you had there? Well, so the unit itself had two rooms. Um, and so, and big, thick metal doors with thick glass. And what I remember is, you know, the nurses would come in like once every four hours just to check on you. And I can remember leaving and hearing those doors slam and just thinking like, let me out. You know, I don't know how, I don't understand how I got here. So there was my room. And then there was one other room next to me on that ward and there was an elderly woman who was in that room and she would just shriek all day long, all day long. And it was just horrible. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know why I was there. I, do, I remember one time, like it was just, as I started getting a little more stable, like my compassion and empathy for this woman next to me, you know, I remember going in next to her and just kind of holding her hand. And then the nurses came in and like, you know, scurried me out and I should never be going into that room. And I'm thinking, well, then how about if you come do your job? <laughs> no one's attending to this woman, you know? Speaking about your experience, other than placing you in a room by yourself, were there interventions that they were attempting? At that point, it was mostly, I was put in restraints and shot up with Haldol, um, trying to kind of bring me out of that state. And at that point that I was on the isolation unit, it was mostly they were trying to get the right medication balance. After I started, you know, showing some more signs of stability, then there were groups and things that I went to. But Honestly, because they didn't quite know what to do with me because of my age, there was nothing that really felt therapeutic to me. It's very interesting that you mentioned that you are on medications that are effective now and, and seemingly trusting those after what you've been through. How did you get to that place where you could trust medication again or even trust the mental health systems again? What a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> Honestly, like I, I spent my 20s after going through that experiment, I took myself off all medication. I was just angry when I, when I left the hospital, I was so drugged up. It was, it was just horrible. I remember a friend coming to see me and I can remember turning my head and a string of drool just came out of my mouth because I had no control you know, because I was so heavily medicated. So I decided to take myself off of everything. And I proceeded to spiral down into a depression. So I went back on, I took myself off, I went back on, I took myself back off. I also come from a religious background. My father's a pastor. And so I had a lot of religious messages that if I just had enough faith, you know, I should be able to cure this, right? So I just, you know, I shouldn't need medication. It's just, I'm not being grateful enough. I should just, you know, rejoice in the Lord always, you know, but when your brain chemistry is off, it just doesn't work out well. 
Do you think there was a certain amount of confusion on the part of your family watching you as deeply rooted in faith as they were? Was it confusing for them to see you struggle? I think it was more confusing for my mom than it was for my dad because my dad's aunt was schizophrenic and my dad's mom had bipolar illness. And so I think he recognized it for what it was a little better than my mom. And for my mom, I felt like the stigma every time I would take myself off the medication, I'd be okay for a little bit of time, but then I would slowly start, you know, things started feeling overwhelming. I couldn't handle anything. And next thing you know, it, I'd be, my depressions would get so low that I just, you know, I, I couldn't eat. I wouldn't sleep. I just, I couldn't get out of bed. And I'd let, you know, we'd get to that point before I was suicidal and then go back into the hospital. So a few rounds of that. And I finally decided maybe I could just stay on this medication, but my mom really battled with it the most. Like she just, you know, was kind of that not in our family sort of thing. Um, That's really unfortunate. Is that part of your practice now to bring families into that healing process? Yes. And to break stigma. Any other illness does not have this kind of judgment. My daughter has diabetes. You know, she goes through episodes. If she has a low sugar or she has a high sugar, her mood is not the same. But, you know, we understand that it's just there's something off in her chemistry and we correct it and it's okay. But, you know, when it comes to a mental illness, it's like a mark against your character. It, it means that you're, you're not competent, you're not intelligent, and it's really just your energy gets off balance. It's very interesting perspective. I, I, I really appreciate your story and how generous you are sharing your, your thoughts as well. So as you made your way through your 20s, you mm-hmm. decide that the medication can, can work for you in some form or another. Were you experimenting with doses? Were you working with a professional to fine tune things? Like what were you going through at that point? So for a very long time, and this kind of comes back to my mother again, God love her. She was just convinced that I didn't have a mood disorder. I didn't, I don't have bipolar. It's just depression. That's it. It's just your garden variety depression. And it was all because of the changes with my thyroid just kind of would not accept that it could be anything else. So for years, I just stayed on an antidepressant and it definitely helped. I mean, I can remember when I, when I first started taking it, it was like, you know, there just used to always be all this chatter, all that negative self-talk. And I mean, we all have it, but you know, where there's high, high levels of anxiety or trauma, it just, it's just nonstop. So I can remember the first time I took the medication, it just kind of was like calm in my brain. And that was wonderful, but I, stayed on that probably like for 10 years, maybe more than that. But it was when I hit menopause, like, wow, (laughs) that stuff wasn't working anymore. And I was just a hot mess. And at that point, um, someone suggested that I go on a mood stabilizer. And I wish I had done that years ago. So did the menopause have depressive effects or was it just deregulating, like destabilizing? Yeah, dysregulating. Okay, yeah. dysregulating. Thank you. It's different for everyone. It's so easy for people to stand apart and judge. You know, say someone's depressed and it's kind of like, oh God, just, you know, get up and go to work. 
you know, if you're dealing with a physical, a physical illness, or let's say someone has, you know, a broken leg and they have a cast on, you can see that they're dealing with something. And so you just kind of naturally know to give them an extra hand. But when you're dealing with an emotional illness, no one can see. So you look like everything's fine on the outside and it's kind of like, suck it up, you're fine, but you're not. And people on the outside don't know what it feels like on the inside. There's another aspect to your story that's interesting to me too, given some of the conversation we've had earlier about your sense that the religious nature of your family made it hard for them to accept mental illness as, as something that you were dealing with that had you know nothing to do with your faith or lack thereof. Or I was wondering about your journey to seminary. How did that come about? I'd say there were two things, and this is so sad looking back, but I was so anxiety stricken. After getting out of the hospital, I just felt like everyone could see that I was crazy. Everyone could see right through me. And that, that is a part of the illness itself is that feeling of paranoia. And it was just so excruciating that I kind of kept bouncing around from job to job. Like I just was too anxious to stay anywhere. I'd thought about teaching elementary school and I was too scared to be in front of the kids. I was so anxious. So I just kind of kept trying to figure out what to do. And then this scholarship came along and it's like I, they paid for my first year and I was like, what the heck, I have to do something. And I was, I guess, intrigued by studying theology because growing up you know, at, in the church, I always had all the answers shoved down my throat. And you, know, you weren't supposed to question, this is just, this is God's word. And so here going to school at seminary, like, I became the valedictorian by asking questions. And suddenly I was allowed to ask and explore in ways that I never could when I was younger. And so within seminary, you found pastoral counseling. This became an interest of yours or was it already an interest of yours? I don't think I would have defined it as it definitely was already an interest of mine. Um, Looking back, as long as I can remember, I was always the one that everyone came to talk to, you know, they just needed someone to listen. So I think I always had that element of my personality. And I think having experienced so many harsh, hurtful religious messages, you know, coming to coming to believe that there's this God out there that's going to reward me if I do the right thing, but punish me if I do the wrong thing. That was never helpful. I really enjoy working with people now who are struggling with, you know, with their faith. What does God mean to them? And I just like meeting people where they're at, you know, God, source, universe, higher power. I don't think there is one right way or one right path. I think it's for each person, it's their personal journey to discover their what anchors them in spirit, what anchors them in the eternal. How does that anchor help your patients or your clients get to this place of balance and wellness that you're seeking for them? So one of the things that I often say when I'm working with someone is that there's the fact of you and then there's the truth of you. 
and the fact of you may be whatever circumstances, you know, a person is dealing with that brings them into therapy, whatever stressors, you know, things in their job, things in their relationship, which are all temporal. And so there's the facts of our experience. And then there's the truth of our experience. The facts change all the time, but the truth the unshakable truth is that every single one of us is born with infinite value and worth and nothing can change that, nothing. And so one of the things that I do is help people to look at those messages that where they pick them up from family, from, from religion, from school, where they've come to believe things about themselves that aren't true, you know, and start to come back to really recognizing their own worth and knowing that there's there's who you are and there's what you do and our and our value is not based on what we do not based on our performance i think my last set of questions is really about how are you now and what words of advice do you have to people who are struggling um, with their either their mental health or even noticing a loved one struggling? What, what advice do you give to people? Well, for someone who is struggling personally, first of all, just know when someone is in the depth of depression or, you know, extreme anxiety, negative thoughts start flying and our thoughts kind of distort our perception of reality. So oftentimes when we're in the peak and in the intensity of an episode, it feels like it's always gonna be this way. It's never gonna get better. It's always been this way my whole life. And just pausing and remembering that this is a temporary situation. It is gonna pass. It hasn't been like this forever. It's like a cloud passing over the sun. You know, it's the sun is still there. And when the cloud passes, you'll feel connected to life again. But right now, you know, there's an episode and it'll pass. But people don't always know that when they're first going through that. So just knowing that it will pass with the right level of intervention. And then how do you help family members who may be observing things in their loved ones or trying to come to a place of acceptance of this need for balance? for their family? There's so many resources out there today, in-person and telehealth. If you need help, there's no reason not to get it. And there's no reason to feel ashamed because man, we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah, it was very interesting what, what you were saying earlier about someone can be very depressed and you might say, you know, suck it up buttercup <laughs> in your mind. And so what are some of the reminders that you might give to people who, whose family members are, are suffering or struggling for, for them to keep in mind? So I would say two things. One is probably the best thing that a family member or a friend or anything can do if someone is struggling is just listen. Just listen and mirror back, reflect, be, be a safe presence, kind of hold space for that person. That's the best thing you can do. And what people want to do is rush in and give advice and fix it. And frankly, that just cuts the person off and it makes it more frustrating because anybody on the outside can rush in and say, oh, well, just do this and just do that. But if you're going through the episode, you don't have the ability to just do those simple things that other people advise. 
So don't try to jump in and advise and fix, just listen with empathy. And as far as I do have to say, oftentimes there can be some enmeshment that happens in family systems. You know, when someone has been dealing with mental illness or addiction for a long time, oftentimes, you know, a parent or a sibling might start to enable that behavior. I mean, there's certainly aspects of the chemistry around mental illness or addiction that we are powerless over, but we aren't powerless over how we choose to respond to the illness. There's always a choice there. And so I would advise family members to lovingly hold the person with the illness accountable to do what they need to do for themselves. And don't feel guilty about setting boundaries and don't feel guilty about stepping away and doing what you need to do to take care of yourself. I know there's been great progress in the treatment of mental illness. Do you think that if someone suffered an episode much like you did in your 20s today, that they would be treated similarly or, or are the approaches improved? I am certain that, I mean, this was back in the 80s. I'm certain that at this stage in the game, I would like to hope that no one would be put on an isolation unit. Um, I do know that if someone is resisting treatment, they might still use restraints. You know, there's, there's a crisis center and then there's a treatment center. And so if someone actually chooses voluntarily to go into treatment, I think it's a whole different experience. Typically people could be, you know, at a center for, I'd say anywhere from two weeks to, to four weeks. And, you know, they're participating in groups, they're seeing a doctor, getting outside, having some exercise. A lot of programs have integrative services like we do at, you know, yoga and massage and mind, body, spirit healing. So I definitely think there are better treatment options out there. But when it comes to at the peak of a crisis, unfortunately, it's just common for someone to go in and they put them on medication. It's just crisis stabilization and you're back out on the street again. You know, and again, if I compare this, I mentioned earlier my daughter, um, when she was diagnosed with diabetes, they would not dare send her home before her sugars were stabilized. We were in the hospital for two weeks, but yet someone can go into a psychiatric crisis, start on new medication, and the average medication we know doesn't even take effect for four to six weeks, but yet people are back out you know, on the street two to three days later before their medication is stabilized. So there's much that, much that needs to happen to improve treatment. Sounds like it. It's, it does sound like it. So talk to me about how you feel when you think you've really helped someone. How does that feel? Ah, it's, it's an amazing feeling. It really is. Um, I've, gosh, I, there's so many stories of people that I've seen. I think one of my favorite is this young lady that I worked with who when she first came to me, um, she was suffering from borderline personality disorder and um, bipolar illness. And she had started cutting herself, repeating this self-destructive behavior. Um, and over time, like she is just amazing. None of those self-harming behaviors exist at this point. 
Um, she didn't think she would ever be able to work. She's now working a full-time job. She's, um, she got herself a car. She's going to school and um, she's getting her own apartment. And so is it fair to say that she found her truth and changed her facts? Change her, or cha yes, changed her beliefs, recognized where these limiting beliefs came from where she kind of learned to adapt someone else's story of who she was and, you know, began unearthing that so that she could start writing her own story. You've done a wonderful job telling your story and, you know, weaving in the obvious compassion that you have for people and the helping spirit that, that you have as well. You know, I always, I call myself the untherapist because I'm, do you, do you remember uh, the seven up commercials? Because I don't, see myself as someone who like has this you know I stand behind the desk and I have this clinical wall and I'm here diagnosing you it's I feel like a diagnosis it's just a code it's it's a billing code that we need to bill for insurance but it doesn't it doesn't define you you know it, a diagnosis is just it's a way of identifying a cluster of symptoms that it's a snapshot in your life not your whole identity. And I always like to point out that, again, stigma around mental illness, any other illness, you know, if you have a heart condition, if you have diabetes, if you have um, a thyroid condition, you know, it's I have, I am who I am, and I have this condition. It's only with mental illness where we would say, you know, I am bipolar, I am schizophrenic, you know, she is bipolar. It's only with mental illness. And so look at what that does. It makes the illness your whole identity. As I was really wrestling with whether or not to be anonymous or put my name out there, I thought about, I don't know if you've ever heard people talk about this, where in the business world, if a male puts himself out there and is strong and assertive, you know, well, he's just being direct. That's what you have to do. Whereas if the female does that, it's like, oh, she's a bitch, right? And I feel like it's a similar thing with mental illness that, you know, if someone who is considered to be quote unquote normal, you know, has to be strong and assertive at times and direct and maybe a little curt, you know, then it's like, oh, well, you know, you sometimes you gotta set the boundary, right? But if a person is known to have mental illness, and generally you're kind and respectful, but you know, you're in a profession where sometimes there has to be a hard line and you're stern and you're direct and it's like, oh God, she's bipolar, right? So I can't have that. Do you feel like people are quick with the labels? They almost pull them out of a holster and shoot them uh, at you? Absolutely. And I, and I can even say when I was first, you know, early on in recovery and my dear sweet mom god bless her means well but i remember talking to someone honestly about my struggles and you know she said well you don't need to like air your dirty laundry in public and i thought like since when did i become dirty laundry you know but that's the stigma so we've covered a lot of ground today the most exciting question of all i think is what's next for you so I mentioned before that I'd started this wellness center and, you know, the point being is to have a place where people can have access to a lot of different services 
not just mental health counseling, but a lot of different services that can help people in their journey towards wellness. But it was kind of my goal just to get that up and off the ground. And now that I've done that, I am looking to turn the management of that over to someone else so that I can really focus on being a recovery coach, essentially, not a counselor, because counseling kind of binds you to the ethics that are driven by insurance. Um, it forces me to assign a diagnostic label in order to get paid. And I don't like being dictated by that. I really believe that everyone has the potential to get well. And I want the model to be about wellness, not about illness. So I'm looking to start a practice where people who have had a mental health diagnosis, but know that they're more than that. I wanna see people not be defined by the illness, but really grow into their fullest potential um, and know that the illness is just a condition, it doesn't define them. Thank you for joining us today on Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm. At Insight Farm, we help companies make their products better through conversation and connection with consumers, often told as stories like the one you've heard today. If you'd like us to help you with consumer research, or if you'd like to participate in this podcast and tell your story, reach out at www.insightfarm.com. We look forward to the conversation.